Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today in episode 113, I'm joined by Dr. Ajay Kurian of the University of Rochester for a journal club discussing recent publications concerning macular ischemia, influence on outcomes in the rise and ride clinical trials, characteristics of second eye wet conversion and age-related macular degeneration, and micropulse versus photodynamic therapy laser for central serous retinopathy. I would like to invite anyone attending this year's uh, ASRS annual meeting in Vancouver who enjoys this program to please try and attend our first ever social media and online content course for ophthalmologists. This is an instructional course that will be on Friday, July 20th at 1 p.m. Dr. Sunir Gar, Charles Wyckoff, David Almeida, Alaji Curry, and myself will be running this course. And if you need more details, feel free to contact me directly. And we look forward to seeing you there. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is back with another journal club, and we're joined by our frequent collaborator, Dr. Ajay Kurian from the University of Rochester. Ajay, welcome back. Thanks for having me again, Jay. Hey, so uh, we are going to go through three different articles, and they're all medical retinal articles. So uh, this will make not only our surgical retinal listeners, but our medical retinal listeners happy. Uh, and we're going to go in order. One was published in JANA Ophthalmology, and this is the first one we're going to discuss. This was uh, published by uh, the group out of Beaumont. Maxwell Stem was the primary author, and it's entitled Outcomes of Antivascular Endothelial Growth Factor Treatment for Choroidal Neovascularization in Fellow Eyes of Previously Treated Patients with Neovascular Age-Related Macular Degeneration. It was published online May 10, 2018 in JAMA Ophthalmology. Aja, you want to tell us a little bit about what this paper um, sought to show and what they showed? Yeah, so this is a, a pretty interesting study that was essentially looking at patients who were being followed for wet macular degeneration one eye and then developed wet macular degeneration in the other eye during their care. And their goal was to see what are the visual outcomes for these patients. And they found that these patients actually have better visual outcomes with, on average, the same number of injections for the equivalent period of time of follow-up. And so it's something that we kind of expected, but it was nice to see it sort of detailed out in this real-world setting that that, that is uh, actually uh, what's happening. And it certainly raises the, the call for uh, as much screening and, um, you know, certainly getting... OCT in both eyes when you're just treating one eye too. Right. So I mean, this and again, they they they. What one of the things they mentioned is is they can't know exact reason. Was it the office was it the vision measurements OCTs? I mean, so I'm gonna say here when we order OCTs, both eyes are routinely scanned. So if we have a patient coming for injections, and not all the providers are a little different here, um, but I personally, if I'm injecting a patient, I like to get an OCT on that visit, and and that's just to get an idea of how, you know, is there worsening, is there stabilization, is there improvement? I like to have those data points uh, in the imaging. Uh, and then the other eye gets scanned at the same time, right? So um, if we're doing this essentially unplanned screening of the other eye, it makes sense that we're going to pick these up earlier and that we're going to see better outcomes if we start treatment earlier, which was true in all the major trials. Yeah, I have a, a pretty similar um, algorithm. Usually if a, if a patient's getting an injection in, in just one eye, the other eye is, is getting scanned also. I tend to essentially take a look every time the patient comes in um, to, to make sure I'm not seeing any other changes like hemorrhages and things like that as well. Um, and what about, you know, they, they, one of the things they mentioned about 
limitations of this study. You know, it's a retrospective study. This is a single practice, so maybe this doesn't apply to everywhere um, in terms of maybe there are different patients with AMD. And, um, but, you know, maybe this is an argument for, even, let's say you're in a practice where you have a patient who's been coming for years getting injections for one eye for wet AMD. Maybe there, there are some practices or even here they're from providers who may not get an OCT at each visit to kind of expedite that patient experience. But you know, if you're not getting an OCT every visit, uh, maybe again, we can't forget to get the OCT to scan for the other eye because we do know that the progression of the other eye, even if it's a dry AMD intermediate or advanced dry AMD to wet is significant if we have one eye with wet AMD being treated. Yeah, you know, you know, I agree. I think that it, it certainly makes sense to to get the other eye scanned when you're when you're scanning uh, the eye the eye that you're treating. It doesn't take too much more time, and I just feel more comfortable knowing that there hasn't been a, a conversion. Right, and and from a billing perspective, right, OCT in a practical perspective, OCT is not billed per eye. It's it's kind of a bundled cost whether you scan one eye or both eyes you're pay, you're coding for the same code and it's a bilateral code right it's whatever nine two one three four um i think is the cpt for it and so i guess again from an like you said it doesn't take long with the current machines the acquisition time is quick uh, i think we have to be remembering you know anything we acquire we would need to review it and i think sometimes I, I always try to teach the fellows not to get tunnel vision you're treating one eye in any patient, macular generation, especially where there could be bilateral disease, not to get tunnel vision, forget to review the OCT or imaging findings in the other eye uh, is pretty important. But, you know, overall, I mean, does this change anything? It sounds like for both of us, it doesn't change anything we do. But I guess if somebody was not getting OCTs um, routinely, this may be an argument that there is a benefit, like you said, to and what we've talked about, to getting the OCT on each visit um, of the fellow eye. Maybe there's an ideal time point. You know, the things we don't know from this study, because it was a fairly short write-up, was what interval would be the best to kind of pick this up? Um, is it every six months, which is when dry AMD exams are usually scheduled? Is it OCT every three months? Or, you know, is there, and I think it makes sense to both of us, there may be a benefit to doing this each time the patient comes in for an injection, whether it's four, six, eight, 10, 12 weeks. Yeah. The other thing that, um, you know, comes to mind is are, are things like the 4C home screening and mm -hmm. any other uh, potential screening things that are on the horizon um, because it is another way to, you know, if the patient is not being treated, for them to send a signal that, um, that potentially they, they might need treatment earlier um, than our traditional Amstler grid. Um, you know, in the past when I tried to, to work with that, I found that the insurance um, maneuvering was a little bit more difficult, but recently it does seem like it's gotten a little bit easier. And so it is something that I'm recommending uh, more frequently to, to patients who qualify. Well, moving forward, our next article was published in Ophthalmology, and this is an article in press uh, that was published in the past month, and it's entitled if Efficacy of Ranibizumab in Eyes with Diabetic Macular Edema and Macular Nonperfusion in the RIDE and RISE Trials. This was presented at multiple meetings, Macula Society um, a couple of years ago, ASRS in 2016, Retina Society the same year, um, but this is finally the publication of the full data. Rahul Reddy was the primary author, with other collaborators being uh, Dante Piramice, Shamika Gune, um, and uh, Carolyn Bomo has also been the program, was the, the, the senior and final author on this paper. And um, just to describe it before we can discuss it, so essentially they looked back at the rise and ride tribe with the post hoc analysis, and those were the large multi-center randomized control trials 
uh, for ranibizumab for diabetic macular edema. And they looked back to kind of differentiate the patients who had significant macular non-perfusion. And they determined that based on the fluorescein angiograms that were done in that study. So there, this is before OCT angiography. So it's a little different than some of the studies you might see now uh, describing macular non-perfusion. But they were able to get kind of the disc areas of macular non-perfusion and measure that. And then they tried to correlate that with how patients did in terms of their outcomes versus patients who did not have macular non-perfusion. And what they found was that the patients who had significant macular non-perfusion, um, and this was picked up in about a quarter of the eyes, um, each of the groups, the, the two doses of ranibizumab and sham injections, these patients, even though they tend to have worse vision, they tend to have more thickening, their diabetic retinopathy tend to be more, tended to be more severe, uh, they still improve quite a bit with, with treatment. Their vision gotten better, their anatomy improved, and um, it, it, this is a kind of impressive, you know, it's something, macular non-perfusion essentially does not exclude somebody from treatment for their diabetic macular edema. So uh, my spinoff question before I ask you thoughts, Ajay, you know, we've talked about this before, uh, but how important is it to you when you're counseling your patients initially with diabetic macular edema, how much macular non-perfusion do they have? Do you get OCT angiography or fluorescein angiography routinely? So I usually get OCT angiography fairly routinely for my diabetic patients. Um, you know, it, it hasn't changed my decision to use anti-VEGF or not anti-VEGF, but it does um, help me counsel patients a little bit, just letting them know, you know, you have more than just the edema. There is something that, that might be limiting the vision in addition to the fluid, um, just to get them prepared in case we don't see a big improvement. Um, you know, certainly this study shows that, that maybe maybe I don't need to be having that conversation because they are improving with the um with the anti-VEGF injection, but I usually just, just like to see what's what's already the baseline um, uh, status for the vessels. Right. And it, it, there are certain things that are kind of weird math. Like they have greater improvement in their diabetic retinopathy in terms of two-step improvement, and they have greater mm -hmm. decrease of CST or greater improvement in their vision. But again, they started at a worse baseline, right? So yeah. That greater degree of improvement is not like they, these are. This is not something you should interpret and say, "Hey, these patients do better." I mean, that that's not true. Yeah. Um, but it, it's reassuring that these patients can do really, really well. And like you said, I, I mean, personally, I, I don't get those those testing uh, that testing routinely now with OCG and geography becoming more and more prevalent. If people have it, that's a non-invasive quick test that can give you kind of a, 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 a idea of what they're prognosis may be. And I, I, we do both know friends in practice who will still get fluorescenes, and I think that's not unreasonable. Um, I think that's a very provider-dependent and very dependent on uh, what you prefer to do. There's, But it's, uh, yeah, go ahead. You were going to say something when I when I mentioned the, the fact about the improvements. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, you know, what's interesting is the OCT, there was a greater baseline. It was 500 versus about 450. Um, but then the improvement was even greater than the difference in the in the baseline. So there's about a 50 micron difference in the baseline, but there's about a 100 micron difference in the improvement. And so you do wonder whether there's whether that actually reflects a degree of uh, ischemia resulting in some degree of atrophy in terms of why they improved even more than what you would. Well, right, right. Uh, so that's a, that's a situation where the CST improves so much that it actually is no longer a healthy CST. It's it's actually less than healthy, right? Because um, yeah. now you're at a point where the retina is too thin because of either um, 
ischemia of the inner outer retinal layers. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, like you said, you mentioned that maybe this you, this could change what you're doing, but you said you, there are reasons for you to do what you do. But yeah, the limitations, I mean, this is post-hoc analysis. These are standardized clinical trial patient, as patients. We've talked about those limitations in other scenarios before. Um, there's no OCTA, so we're literally looking at the superficial capillary plexus, not the deep plexus that OCTA shows um, versus fluorescein angiogram. And we might get more information about what happens with deep capillary ischemia and macular non-perfusion. These old definitions of disc areas and FA may become antiquated and, and may not be as applicable in the future. But um, any, anything else you take from this or anything that you use to kind of go, what would you like to see as a spin-off study, for example? So, you know, I think one thing that um, I, I think certainly using OCTA in the future is, is going to be just make this a lot easier to do with this on a larger scale um, and just do it routinely in your in your clinical practice just because it's, it's not invasive, it's a lot faster and things like that. Um, but I think that the figure two um, for me in this paper is pretty striking. It, the, the mean um, macular non-perfusion area and it shows a baseline in the sham. And, you know, they did analysis to show that there's really no difference at every individual visit. But when you look at the treatment arm compared to the sham arm, at that final month 24 visit, when you see just the, the macular non-perfusion is just continuing to increase in the, in the sham group, and you actually see an improvement in the treatment group. And that, to me, is a super exciting area um, of, of research and um, potential implications for for what anti-VEGF is doing um, for macular non-perfusion. Is it potentially actually improving it? Now, they didn't find an association with the visual acuity outcomes and the amount of macular non-perfusion in this study, um, but, but certainly that is something that we think about um, for, for future studies and, um, and research. Right, and like you said, when they, in an individual visit basis, we didn't see that striking difference, but that figure you know, and, and for people who are going to read the paper, just to visualize, that figure basically shows an ascending line for the sham group, right, where the, the mean macular non-perfusion disc area, as you said, gets larger versus kind of this inverted V for the, 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 the 0.3 ranibizumab group, which is the approved DME dose uh, that came out of this study. Yeah. Uh, well, from DME, we move on to our final topic, which is central serous choreretinopathy. So this is another article from Ophthalmology published um, online and in press. Um, in the last month, it's titled Half-Dose Photodynamic Therapy Versus High-Density Subthreshold Micropulse Laser Treatment in Patients with Chronic Central Serous Choreoretinopathy, entitled The PLACE Trial. Uh, this was presented at the European Society of Retinal Specialists in Barcelona last year. Uh, the primary author was Elon van Dijk. Dijk? I, I don't know if I'm messing up the pronunciation, but uh, and the senior author, Camille Boone. Um, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about what this study uh, showed, and then we can talk a little bit about CSR and the op treatment options and, and what we take from this? Sure. So this is uh, also an interesting study. It was a, an open-label, randomized, multi-center study in Europe um, where patients with CSR with uh, subretinal fluid were essentially randomized to either receiving um, half-dose PDT or micropulse laser. And so they essentially used FAICG to um, guide treatments, and um, they looked at both uh, visual acuity outcomes, anatomic outcomes, and a quality of life questionnaire. And so interestingly, they found that there was an improvement of visual acuity um, 
at initial follow-up and um, a little bit of improvement that wasn't statistically significant at the um, at the final follow-up um, in the PDT group, and then certainly a better anatomic outcome for the PDT group, and about equal quality of life questionnaire outcomes for the two groups. So what do you tell patients with, with central, before we get into the data and break down this paper, central serous retinopathy, patient comes in, um, acute symptoms, what do you typically tell them and what is your follow-up interval and what do you tell them about future treatment? So I usually um, you know, do a pretty exhaustive check to make sure that they're not on any steroid medications and I make sure that they look at any creams or lotions that they're using and things that they wouldn't think of as medications. Um, I talk to them about their stress level and, and see if there's any um, big new stress level that's, uh, that's present. Um, and then I tell them that most patients usually get better just with time. Um, there's a, a small percent of patients who do have persistent fluid, um, and we'll sort of talk about options that are there um, when we get there if we need to, but hopefully the fluid's going to go away. And I usually see them back um, somewhere between like two and three months just to, to see how they're doing. And I tell them if they feel like things get a lot worse, they can certainly call me to, to see them earlier. And then when you see them back and they, let's say they're not improved and they still have fluid or the fluid's worse, um, what do you do then in terms of treatment? Let's say it's three months after your in initial symptoms. Uh, so if it looks like things are getting better, I usually say, you know, things are going the right direction, they're not fully gone, let's keep waiting and, and see how, how things go. Um, if patients are doing worse, then I usually talk about um, different options. I personally don't have uh, micropulse um, laser, so I usually talk about either trying a Plurinon or trying PDT. Um, most patients that I spoke to usually try um, an oral medication before they do a laser, uh, but some patients do opt to do a laser. Um, and so it's only a small number of patients that I've tried these, and I've had pretty good results with PDT um, in the past, uh, some variable results um, with the Plurinon. Um, and then you know, some patients just get choose to observe and they get better even though they didn't get better the first time well so that, now let's go into this paper right so you said you don't have micropulse available micropulse is something that's been discussed and, and they, they kind of gave it the hsml um as kind of their abbreviation for it but micropulse is something that people have talked about as, as one of the applications being central serous retinopathy um, this was a fairly well-designed study in terms of how it looked at micropulse versus PDT. What limitations do we see here before we talk about implications? So I think one thing is that, you know, they didn't treat any um, lesions that were right under the fovea with the PDT. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that could certainly be something that uh, um, people who are pro-micropulse might is a, a big distinguishing factor for micropulse. You can go ahead and treat those lesions in the um, under the fovea, and so um, that would certainly be something that that might be a, a bit of a confounder or something that warrants further study to see if there's a difference in that subset of um, of CSR patients. Right, and the, the, that's a like you said, that's a that's a big point here. Um, I mean, I think that this is this there, there's a lot of strengths to this though it's fairly compelling in terms of 
And maybe the Micropulse crowd doesn't see this, like you said, as being bad. They just feel Micropulse is a less invasive or a less destructive procedure. PDT also is difficult to come by. I, I know, I mean, I know that here, Bascom or Rochester, at academic institutions, it may be easier to perform. But from my understanding, talking to our colleagues out in practice, it can be difficult, one, to get approval, and B, some places just don't have the machine. Uh, and the machines aren't exactly yeah. like growing on trees. And so um, I do more PDT now than I did ever before. Um, I think it works really, really well if there's a focal leak that you see on FA that you can treat. Uh, I don't sense I have the same amount of effect, and I don't I don't usually recommend it if I don't have a clear area to treat. I don't think it's something that is good for hunting and pecking. But again, I'll defer to greater experience. I'm sure those people have done PDT for many more years than, than what I've done. Yeah, I think I have a, a similar approach as you and, and also have a, a small sample size. Um, I've been pretty happy when I have done it, but it's, it's certainly few and far between. And most of my patients get better with observation. I would say it's it's less than 15% in in my experience, but certainly the literature shows that, that there um, can be a, a decent amount of patients who, who do need um, or who do have uh, persistent fluid. Right. And and the final point, and they brought up this point up at the end, which is, is a great point, and that's what I was referencing in terms of PDT reimbursement. Maybe this is a trial that right now PDT is technically off-label uh, for CSR, mm-hmm. right? And so that's a big problem with reimbursement, but maybe this is enough evidence. We know that PDT works in a lot of these patients, so if we can clarify that and the patients who, like you said, most get better, but for the ones who don't get better to have that option available and not have issues in terms of insurance coverage here in the U.S. would be really, really nice. Yeah, that would definitely be a, a very helpful thing to, to have that option available easily. Well, Ajay, thanks so much for doing this Journal Club with you, uh, with me, with you. I did it with you too. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> you can tell I'm, I'm a little delirious uh, long day in the OR, but before we go, uh, this is going to air um, after the NBA Finals are over, regardless of how many games this goes. But right now, we're recording this. Cleveland is now down 3-0. I both, we both assume that they are going to lose this series. And my two questions for you, uh, followed by a third rumor I heard, which may get you excited. My first question is, where is LeBron signing this summer? And my second question is, I want your thoughts on... Um, what about this Brian Colangelo scandal? And I'll talk a little bit about that, but let's talk about LeBron first. Where is LeBron signing this summer? So I think uh, it really depends on his state of mind. If he feels like he wants to keep chasing rings, I think he's going to go to Houston. Um, but I think that if he just wants to solidify his legacy as a, a Cleveland hero, then despite the lack of supporting cast, you know, he's shown that he was able to drag this team into the finals. He could probably do it again. Maybe they have some avenues for improvement. Um, he he may stay in Cleveland. Now, I think that's the less likely situation. Um, but but I think if he wanted to keep his legacy intact there, that's what that's what he would do. I think that his legacy. He feels correctly. His legacy is intact enough. He's going to go to L.A., not Houston, and try to build a super team. And I think that even though he was able to drag this Cleveland team to the finals, and you could think, well, maybe I could do that again. He played, like, every minute of, like, every playoff game. He scored 40-plus points. He had 10 rebounds, 10 assists, like, every night. And they still only beat Indiana uh, because Oladipo missed a a game-tying three in game three or two, I believe. Um, 
Oladipo had a goal 10 block, even though they won that game on the three, it may not have mattered. And then Indiana was just not that good. And then Boston didn't have Kyrie, still took him to seven. Boston was seven for, what, 40-something, 30-something in that last game? They were really bad from three yeah. in that last game. And they still almost lost both those series because this team is really, really bad. And this yeah. team is not going to be better. And I don't think that the um, the Cavs and LeBron is not going to be better. I know LeBron keeps improving. He's not going to be better. I mean, at some point, he's going to break down. I mean, he's playing like every minute. At some point, it's just not physically possible. Um, my second question, so for the listeners who haven't heard, even if you're not interested in basketball, it's super entertaining. So to summarize, Brian Colangelo, he's the general manager of the 76ers, or was up until a few hours ago. He was caught by a reporter who got tipped off by a anal- software analytics guy that there were multiple Twitter accounts all being run by Brian Colangelo. And the reason they figured out was that the language used by these Twitter accounts was similar. The activity correlated. The people following these accounts were like his friends and family. He, those accounts were following his friends and family. And he was writing all sorts of crazy things, uh, both sensitive health information about his parents, parents, patients, not about his parents, not his patients, his players, excuse me. Um, I can't talk. And he was writing sensitive health information about his uh, players and criticizing other general managers, his own team, his own players. And it's, he just lost his job. He got fired because, I mean, they did an internal investigation. I'm sure they found out, yes, these are his accounts. And, you know, Ajay, this is applicable not to just not more than to more than just the NBA or basketball or sports. Like, what is this the lesson we take about it? I mean, this is stuff we all implicitly understand, but... It's crazy, right? Like people become completely different people when they think they're protected by uh, the anonymity of the internet. But nothing is truly anonymous, right? And with physicians, we all kind of understand that. But we have to be careful as well. There've been cases of physicians who've gotten in a lot of trouble about social media or internet fiascos. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'm going to do is uh, delete all my burner Twitter accounts and talk about the Retina Podcast. <laughs> um, <but laughs> Uh, you mean I love Retina three two four as you? <laughs> but it it is pretty striking. Um, you know, the first time I heard of this was uh, with Kevin Durant going on random Twitter websites and um, and basically defending himself. Um, but this is like a whole new level of of just strangeness. I think we live in a a new world with social media and uh, social media insecurities and the ability to uh, to seemingly anonymously post things when when in fact it's not as anonymous as you might hope you know the funny thing about this is uh i have like 16 burner accounts to follow the podcast just to make sure that uh, we have followers. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. we have 235 followers on twitter and i believe 234 are me and then uh, the other one's my mom but Anyway, interesting commentary, and uh, again, physicians have to be careful, too, about this sort of thing. Um, That's why, shameless plug, it's in the intro, but we're doing this course at ASRS. One of the things we're talking about is online content, social media, and I think this is a relevant story to bring up and kind of talk about how we do have to be careful about what sort of things are put online, what sort of things we even talk about in this program, how we talk about things if we... Uh, from a patient privacy standpoint, but also in terms of how we're perceived and, and professionalism. Uh, my last question. So I heard a rumor. Jalen Rose said on the Bill Simmons podcast that he thinks that Kevin Durant is going to sign with the Knicks in 2020 or 2021 when he leaves Golden State. Ajay Kurian's reaction. Oh, Does Ajay Kurian I've, want I've... sort of old Kevin Durant? <laughs> 
I, I would love to have Kevin Durant, but I've had decades of star players saying they're going to go to the Knicks just to build up their market value and uh, sign a better, bigger contract somewhere else. So I don't believe it until I see it. <laughs> well, Bill Simmons proposed the brilliant idea where the, the Knicks could sign Rich Kleiman, who was Kevin Durant's agent, as their general manager. And uh, similar to Rob Polinka becoming the general manager of the Lakers, or Bob Myers, who was a former agent, becoming general manager of the Warriors. So you never know. I don't think Kevin Durant's enough to win the title, though. I think that you need a lot more than Kevin Durant to win the title, uh, as good as Kevin yeah. Durant is. So, but <laughs> Knicks haven't won a title in 45 years. It's true. I'm just trying to have the Knicks be competitive and make the playoffs at this point. My, my bar is uh, a lot lower than the title. What's your NBA draft dream scenario for the Knicks? Because we probably won't talk before the draft. Who falls oh, to the man. Knicks and you're super excited? You're like, yes, this guy fell. The Knicks have finally broken years of lottery cursing. Uh, you know, there's actually a pretty decent amount of talent in this uh, this draft. Um, you know, If Luka Doncic could somehow fall to the Knicks, which I know is not going to happen, <laughs> I would be <laughs> ecstatic. <laughs> That would be amazing, but I, I see laugh. no realistic way that that's going to happen. <laughs> that is, that, you were so crazy. This is like when, I don't remember if it was you or John, I think you said you thought they could make like the Eastern Conference semis a couple years ago when we started the podcast, and John was like, oh, I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't know. Um, Miles yeah. Bridges, maybe. One of the, one of the Bridges. I that, think, I think one of the two Bridges are, have a high chance of being there. That wouldn't be like a, a dream scenario. Uh, I think that's like a realistic scenario, and I'd be happy with either of the, of the two. Yeah, I, I can make a really bad, I just thought of a really bad bridge pun, but I'm going to leave it. All right, Ajay, um, <laughs> it had to do with Phil Jackson and uh, <laughs> appendages that connect across rivers burning. But um, Ajay, <laughs> thank you for joining, as always, despite your busy day. And uh, I will talk to you probably, um, ASRS will be the next time we'll talk, and uh Listeners, if you enjoyed the Journal Club podcast, uh, one of the nice things we've talked about is uh, we're working on trying to get CME for these episodes. So um, look for up for that in the near future. And if you like this, try to check out our course at ASRS. It will be on the Friday at like 1 o'clock. Um, and more details were in the intro about uh, how to find out how to attend that because it uh, should be pretty good. Great. Thanks again for having me, Jake. All right. Have a great day. As always, you can find this episode and all prior episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 113 episodes, including this one, can be found there sort of by category. You'll also find our blog, Equal Round and Reactive Lessons from Our Pupils. On the website, you can sign up for our mailing list to get updates on the most recent episodes. At the bottom are links to subscribe in the iTunes Store as well as Google Play. You can also like our Facebook page or find us in the podcast section of the iTunes Store and Google Play. We're on Twitter at Retina Podcast and to contact us link on the contact us link on our website or email us at retinapodcast at gmail.com. We really love getting feedback both things we can do better and things we are already doing well. We also appreciate anyone who subscribes via iTunes or Google Play to leave your positive comments in the form of a review. Many thanks to Dr. Curian for joining me. Thanks to Louis Kai, Mike Vinicasa, Angela Chang for producing a great episode. Finally, listeners, thank you for what you do on a daily basis, the patient care you provide, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. Feeling. This is straight from the cutter's mouth. <laughs> Take care. Bye bye.